mountains and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When si- how would you like to, ha- how many of you like to have a fishing day like that? You know, it's just like as fast as you can pull them out, man. I mean, I, I like catching. I don't love fishing, but I love catching. Catching is fun. Fishing can be boring. But anyway, um, so they, they caught so many fish that their ships began to sink. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. This morning I want to bring a a sermon entitled, Letting God write your story. Letting God write your story. Before we do, let's pray real quick, and, uh, and we'll look at a few things. Father, thank you so much for the morning. Thank you for the day. I just pray that you'd work in our hearts. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be encouraged and challenged from your word today. And Lord, just speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to go on to Google and do a Google search for types of stories. It's really, I find it kind of interesting. It's probably very geeky, but I kind of find it interesting. But there is a whole world, there is an entire culture of people that write stories. And there is a philosophy and an idea and a, and a way of thinking behind the writing of stories. And I don't know about you, but when I think of like somebody writing a book, I think somebody just sat down one day, they started writing and they wrote a book. But that's not really how it works. I mean, there is a whole way of life and a way of thinking behind writing stories and writing books. But if you were to go online and look up types of stories, you're going to find that there are primarily seven types of stories. Every book you've ever read, every movie you've ever watched, everything fits into these seven categories. Those seven categories are this, overcoming the monster, rags to riches. And you guys are going to think of books and movies you've seen or read as I mentioned these, but you have Overcoming the Monster, Rags to Riches, you have The Quest, you have Voyage and Return, you have Comedy, Tragedy, and Rebirth. Those seven categories, every story ever written falls into one of those categories, which I thought was kind of interesting. I was going, I went online and I was looking up this idea of, you know, your life story, um, I was telling Thane, I, I met a young man one time and we were talking and he found out I was a pastor, worked at a church, whatever, and he was like, man, we need to get together sometime because I want to hear about your spiritual journey. I personally don't really talk like that. 
That's not, you know, I'm not into the whole, man, let me share my story with you. That's, I don't, I don't, I'm not that guy, okay? I'm just not like that. But I have heard that before, and I have read that before. And as I was reading this, this account with Jesus and Peter, this kind of came to my mind. And so I was online looking up some different blogs and things, and I read this question. I want to read this to you this morning. This blog, this blog I wrote, this person wrote this question. Ask yourself this question. Am I living a life of my own design, following my passions and interests, or am I following my family, friends, or society, living someone else's dreams? If you now realize that you are not living your chosen life story, it is time to take a look at what you'd like to change. If you've been doing the same career or business, living the same lifestyle, keeping too busy to take time to observe, observe your life and your feelings, it may be time to take a time out and see what's really important to you. Now, I would argue that as a Christian, that should not be your life philosophy. But unfortunately, many times that is how we view life. We want to follow our passions. We follow our passions, our desires, our dreams. We're trying to get the job we want. We're trying to raise the family we want. We're trying to make our friends happy, our family happy. We're trying to make society happy. We're trying to make everybody else happy. But all too often, we fail to make God happy. And God is the one who should be writing your life story. Not you. Not your family. Not your friends. Not your boss. But God. God should be writing our life stories, and I want to share that with you this morning in the life of Peter. Just a couple points. First one is this, just a guy writing his life story. Just a guy writing his life story. Look at Luke 5, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. Here are two guys living their life. Jesus is teaching and preaching. He's out there with the people, and, and the crowd is getting so big that they're pressing up on him, and he really has no space to teach, and so he's trying to find a venue or, or a way that he can actually talk and preach to the people, and so Jesus is living his life, preaching and teaching, but in verse 2, Peter's living his life. Peter's a fisherman. He's out of, his boat's up on the shore. He's out of that boat. He's over here mending and washing and cleaning up his nets. Why? He's preserving them. He's taking care of them. You know, um, whatever. I mean, he's a fisherman. He's doing his job. He's just a guy writing his life story. I think we can identify with that. I mean, on an average day, we are just usually a man or a woman living their life, writing their life story. We go to work. We do our job. We go home, we eat dinner, we go to bed, we get up, we go to work, whatever. We just live, we're living our life, writing our life story. We're just a normal person writing our life story. And so that was Peter and Jesus. They're just doing what they did. And you know what? I would say we could all, we're all in that same boat. We're all in the same category. We're just writing our life story. But there's a couple things that happen here in Peter's life story that I want you to notice. Notice verse 3. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, notice this, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. The first thing I want you to think about when it comes to this life story that Peter was writing was his life got interrupted. Here's Peter. He's over here mending his nets. He's washing his nets. nets. He's, he's doing the maintenance and taking care of me. He's just working. He's doing his job. He's living his life. 
And all of a sudden, this guy gets in a boat and says, hey, could you thrust out a little bit? How many of you like being interrupted? Mm-hmm. I thought so. Me either. How many of you always handle being inter- interrupted well? Yeah, me either. Listen, here's Peter. Hey, I realize you're Jesus, but can you find another boat? I mean, can you, can you come back in 20 minutes? I'll have this net done. I'm kind of in the middle here. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was a cleaning process with, with their boats, and he got it up on shore, and he had it kind of cleaned up and, and, and you know, like everything put away and stuff, and it's like, now i got to push this thing back out in the water. But he got interrupted from what he was doing. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, God loves interruptions. God uses interrupting our lives to get our attention and to get us to pay attention to him and see what he wants from us. He uses interruptions. So God interrupts Peter's life, and Peter, Peter thrusts out. He, he takes the boat out. It says there in verse 3, and he prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. So Jesus gets into the boat, and Peter gets, pushes the boat out in the water and gets Jesus out away from the land a little bit, so now he can teach the people. So his life was interrupted. But notice verse number 4. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Not only was he interrupted, but now he's inconvenienced. Now he's inconvenienced. Now Jesus is telling him what to do. Now he's telling him to put his nets back in the water where they're going to get dirty again or they're going to get wet again or, or whatever. And so Jesus now inconveniences Peter. How many of you like being inconvenienced? I, I hate asking to borrow, like, a tool. I do. I hate it. And you can ask my wife, if I'm doing something, I'm probably just going to go buy the tool. I, I'm, I mean, I look at jobs and things that have to be done as an opportunity to buy a tool. Now, ladies, how many of you would say my husband is the exact same way? See, how many of you guys would say, yeah, I'm not afraid. Yeah, that's me too. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, I like owning tools. Tools are cool. I like tools. And I'm always looking for a reason to buy a tool. So, yes, I try to do things on my own sometimes. That way I can buy the tool. But I don't like asking to borrow tools because I always feel like I'm inconveniencing somebody. Like, what if they need it? And then, you know, do I have to have it back at a certain time? And, and then... And then what really, it scares me, like, the thought of, like, what if I break it? What if I mess it up? You know, I mean, I don't know. Those kind of things scare me. You can ask Mark. I borrowed his uh, tile saw for, like, two years. Um, but I do. I just, I don't, I just, I'm afraid I'm going to inconvenience somebody. How many of you will struggle and try and do before you actually ask for help so that way you don't inconvenience somebody else? Some of you like that? Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. I understand that. Here, Peter is inconvenienced. But ladies and gentlemen, we need to realize this. God works in inconvenience and interruptions because they get our attention. They shake it up. And we don't like it. We don't like it. You know how I know? Because if you have kids and if you've had kids, then you know that when you're in the middle of something and that kid comes in, and wants to ask for something or whatever, and you're kind of like, 
Leave me alone right now. I'll talk to you in a minute. I know I'm not the only one who's ever done that. But we don't like interruptions and inconveniences, but God loves them. Because when we're interrupted and inconvenienced, God can begin to work and God can get our attention and we start paying attention to God better. So here, God interrupts and he makes, he inconveniences Peter. Now, I want to give you just a a small piece of advice from the life of Christ when it comes to interruptions and inconvenience. Keep a finger here, go over to Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. Now, I am not going to stand up here and tell you that I am the greatest example of how to handle interruptions and inconvenience, because I'm not, all right? You can go to my wife as, as soon as this service is over, and she can give you all of the illustrations where I poorly handled being interrupted or inconvenienced, okay? She can. I, 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 I do not always do this, but I was thinking about this this week, and I saw this uh, here in Luke chapter number 9, and I thought, wow, Wes, you really need to get your act together. Look at the example of Jesus in Luke 9, verses 10 and 11. It says, And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So here, the disciples come to Jesus, and they've been, they've been traveling, they've been preaching, working for the Lord, and, and all these things. And they come back to Jesus, and they're telling him everything he's done. And Jesus says, okay, let's take a little vacation. We're going to go out here privately, out here in the wilderness by Bethsaida, and we're just going to get away for a little bit. But notice what happens in verse 11. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. What a pain. Can't you respect my privacy? Can't you respect my space? Can I get a little time to myself? No. The people found out where Jesus was, and that's where they went. So they went out there privately trying to get away a little bit, and here come the people, and you know what Jesus does? He sees them, and he's like, oh, man, these needy people. They are such an inconvenience. They're going to interrupt our time to be away. That's not what he says. Notice what it says in verse 11. And he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. Wow. I don't always respond that well. Three things I want you to think about when it comes to interruptions or inconveniences in your life three things number one anticipate them because they will happen anticipate them they will happen secondly accept them notice what it says here about jesus and he received them he was receptive to their interruption and their inconvenience how well do we accept or receive those interruptions So anticipate them, accept them, and then the last one is just act on them. Act. Notice what it says. And spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, when it comes to other people many times, I could extend a little more mercy and a little more grace when I'm interrupted or inconvenienced. I could extend a little more mercy and a little more grace. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He extends mercy and grace to these people. He preaches and teaches to them, and he heals them. He doesn't chase them off. He doesn't yell and bite their heads off. I would say that we all could probably handle interruptions a little better, a little better. But not only is his life interrupted and inconvenienced, but notice this. Go back to Luke chapter 5. When Peter 
obeys the Lord, and he launches out into the deep. Notice what it says in verse 5. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Notice this. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Not only was Peter's life interrupted and inconvenienced, but notice this. Peter now sees the impossible. Peter now sees the impossible. Notice what he says in verse 5. And Simon answering said unto him, Master. Now get this. That word master means teacher, expert. What is Jesus to Peter? He's a teacher. I just put you in my boat and pushed out into the water here so that you could teach the people. You're a teacher. Do you know who I am, Lord? Or master? Do you know who I am, master? I am a professional fisherman. That's what I do. Peter probably knew those waters like the back of his hand. He probably knew how the bottom of that water was and where the fish liked to be. He could probably find and follow fish anytime he needed to. Peter was a professional fisherman. And he says, Master. He's saying, hey, you do you and I'll do me. Okay? But then notice the rest of verse 5. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Ladies and gentlemen, that word nevertheless is pretty awesome. Nevertheless, it means but. But. I'll do it anyway. You know, it goes against everything I know, everything my dad taught me growing up, everything I've experienced in my adult life. It goes against everything I've, I think, know, experience, everything I've ever been taught, but I'll do it anyway. God ever convict you about something or tug at something and you're like, yeah, you know, God, um, well, you know, I, really, I worked really hard for that. And you know, well, God, well, we did this. And, and, and you find every excuse to explain it away. That's kind of where Peter was, but Peter comes back and he says, nevertheless, at thy word, I'll let down the net. Ladies and gentlemen, we got to come to a point in our Christian lives where we just take God at his word and we stop trying to explain it all away. We stop trying to make sense of it. We stop trying to take everything we've ever learned, been taught, or whatever experience we've had and try to stick it in what God wants us to do and make it make sense to us. We have to get to the point where we just take God at his word and we say, okay, God, I'm going to do it because you said it. And that's what Peter does here. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Verse 6, and when they had this done, obedience, action. Peter didn't say, all right, Lord, nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the net and then row to shore and go back to cleaning his nets. Peter didn't say, okay, Lord, and then not let down the net. No. He let down the net. You say, well, yeah, duh, that's what the story says, and it's so simple. Yeah, and you know what? Many times in our lives, what God asks us to do is so simple. Yet, how easy it is, is it for us to explain it away or make excuses and say, yeah, 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 well, God understands. Ladies and gentlemen, God does not understand. God does not understand. God expects us to obey. God expects us to do what he asks us to do. And so here, Peter lets down the net. And ladies and gentlemen, in verse 6 it says, And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, 
and their net break. Let me ask you a question. If Peter doesn't let the net down, do they catch a giant multitude of fish? Do they? Do they? No, they don't. Do you realize when we obey God, we give God an opportunity to work in our lives? When we obey God, we open up the door for God to work. But when we don't obey, that door stays closed and God isn't able to do anything because we haven't obeyed. I think our invitation song this morning is trust and obey. Obey. When we obey, it opens up that door for opportunity. And the reality is this. We have no idea what God will do. We have no idea until we obey. And so, you know what we do sometimes in our lives? We refuse to obey and do what God wants us to do. And so we never see God do anything. And then this is what we say. Well, uh, you know, God never worked that way in my life. And well, you know, God never did that for me. And well, I've never seen it work. You know why? Because you've never obeyed. You have to take that step of obedience, and when you do, God works. God works. And notice this. God does something amazing here. In verse 7, it says, And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both ships so that they began to sink. Now, I don't really care how small of a boat you have. I don't care if you have a canoe or a kayak. But how many fish? is it going to take to sink your canoe? That's a lot of fish. These guys are out on the Sea of Galilee. This is a giant, this is a large body of water. They are not out there in John boats. They are not out there probably in a bass boat. They are probably in something that has a rather large hull that is big and that can handle the waves and the storms that come over the mountains and sweep across the, the Sea of Galilee. So they have a boat that is big enough to handle those storms. And they catch so many fish. Not one boat, two boats. James and John come over and they fill both boats. They break their nets to where they began to sink. I remember when I was a kid, my dad had like a little John boat with a little outboard motor on it. And we would take that up to the lakes in northern Arizona. And we'd go camping and fishing and different things. And I remember one time, um, I think we were on Apache Lake in Arizona. And uh, we were out on the water, we were fishing, and this storm came out of nowhere. And I mean, and I was just a kid, but I mean, it was choppy. And my dad was fighting. That little boat did not want to go back to shore. And my dad's like, nee, 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 nee. and we're like, trying to get back. And the wind's kind of pushing us, the waves, and it, was, and it just, man, it was hard getting back to shore. And I remember, man, those waves were coming up, you know, and they're hitting the side of the boat. And I'm like, Strap your life vest on a little <clears throat> tighter. That's kind of scary. But here, those fish, I mean, they're sinking that boat down, and the water is getting closer and closer and closer and closer to the lip of the boat. They finally get it to shore. Notice what it says about them in verse 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on his, on his knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 9, for he was astonished. This word astonished is a pretty neat word. It means to be amazed. It means to be astonished. It borderline means fear. Fear. Now, I, I, know, I know a couple of you, okay? 
I, I know how a few of you are in this room already, but how many of you would say, I am an adrenaline junkie? Okay, so we have some liars here too. That's cool. All right, good. All right. Listen, do you like, maybe you don't like, but there is a sick, depraved, calloused, violent, dark part of you that gets pleasure out of this. But do you like that sense of fear when you get like to that edge? And there's like that, it's, it's fear, but it's also like that adrenaline rush and you're like, yeah. Yeah, you like that. That's kind of what this word means. It's like they saw something happen that brought them to this point where it was so mind-blowing. It was almost scary, but it was amazing. Now listen, that's a lot of fish. I mean, Jesus, God, took a professional fisherman out into a body of water, had him drop his nets, and that man caught so many fish that it shocked and amazed him. Some of you adrenaline junkies might say, it's, it's hard to impress me. You're like, I, I've done, I've seen, I've been, I, I've experienced enough that it's, it's hard to impress me. I would imagine as a fisherman, Peter was probably a hard man to impress. But Jesus impresses Peter. Peter's mind is blown by the number of fish that they catch. Verse 10 says, and so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They also were just, what just happened? The impossible happened. The impossible happened. But listen, if Peter doesn't launch out into the deep, and if Peter doesn't put down his net, Peter doesn't catch these fish, and the impossible never happens. And ladies and gentlemen, the same is true in your life and in mine. If we refuse to obey God, and we're not willing to do what he simply asks us to do, then we will never see the impossible happen. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says this, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above. Do you realize how emphatic that is? He was able to do exceedingly abundantly above. Paul could have just said unto him that is able to do above all that we ask or think. But no, Paul goes a step further and he says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above. It's emphatic. He's trying to get our attention, get us to realize, listen, God can do things that you can't even imagine. So he says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think. Have you ever just had a thought and God made it happen? Have you ever just thought, man, Lord, this would be nice and God made it happen? He didn't really ask. He just had a thought. According to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, worlds without end. Amen. God can do, ladies and gentlemen, he can do more than you could ever even make up. But yet, because we don't obey, because we're not willing to submit to him, God isn't able to work. So we never see the impossible. Peter saw the impossible. Why? Because he obeyed God. So here is just a guy writing his life story. Just a guy writing his life story, and that life story gets interrupted, it gets inconvenienced, but you know what? He sees the impossible. 
Which brings me to my second point, my last point. Not just a guy writing his story, but here I want you to see Jesus wants to write your story. Jesus wants to write your story. Three thoughts here real quick. The first one, in verse 5, Simon Peter called Jesus master, teacher, expert. But when they catch these fish, notice what Peter says in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Get this, O Lord. It's interesting that word Lord in the New Testament is a reference to Jesus and to Jehovah, but that word Lord means something very interesting. That word Lord literally means master, owner, proprietor, proprietor, boss, literally means I have the right to tell you what to do. Why? Because I own you. This was a word that was used in reference to slave owners. Lord. Now, many of you this morning drove here. And you own a vehicle somewhere out there in the parking lot. If I was to find your keys and just hop in your vehicle and take a trip over to Maine and enjoy myself a nice little vacation in the state of Maine, you'd probably be a little bothered by that, wouldn't you? How many of you would say, yes, I'd be bothered by that? And rightfully so. Why? It's not mine. I don't own that vehicle. If I was to just show up at your house and walk in the front door and say, hey, guys, how we doing? And start rummaging through your fridge and just making myself at home, I'd probably get shot by your wife. Why? Because it's not my home. I don't own it. I have no right to it. Here, Peter uses a word. He goes from master, teacher, expert. Jesus to Peter at the beginning was just a teacher. But when he sees God and he sees what Jesus can do, it changes to Lord. He says, you are Jehovah God. You are Lord. You are the creator. You own everything, including myself. And he bows down at his feet. Ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus is going to write our story, we need to submit. We have to come to a point where we are willing to submit to him as Lord in our life, not master. See, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's real easy. We come to church, we hear preaching, we go home and we live our lives. And if we're not careful, Jesus becomes nothing more than a teacher. I would say it like this. Jesus becomes nothing more than a YouTube video. Do you, do you realize the extent of our consumerism in America? We consume and consume and consume and consume, but most of the time we do very little. Um, it, it is amazing in our, in our economy the amount of money that is made on people's desire to know something or to be a part of some, some kind of hobby or whatever, so, but no actual doing of it. You say, well, what are you, what are you talking about? So you got a guy who says, I read a statistic a long time ago. Is Mr. Where's Mr. Gatto at? There he is. I read a statistic a long time ago that said um, 
it was like a, it was like 90%. I don't I don't remember if that's what it was, but it was a ridiculous number of people that play golf never break 100. In other words, what you have is you have a bunch of old men that like to go out and hit a little white ball with $2500 worth of clubs that they bought and with their their fancy little shoes and their knickers and their and their sweater vest and they like to go out and hit this little white ball but there's actually no intent on actually practicing, working at it, and getting better, and being able to actually play the game. But they want to look the part, they want to know the part, they want to have all of this information, but they can't actually do it. If you're a, if you're a woodworking type of person in here, you would know that there are several woodworking magazines, and you can subscribe to them, and they will send them to your house, and it gives you all kinds of information about woodworking. But just because you have that information doesn't mean you can do it. You realize there are companies that sell uh, hand planes. If you know what a hand plane is, it's this blade in, in, this, in this vehicle for that blade, and you can slide that across the surface, and you can finish that surface up, and then they make these high-end chisels so you can make, like, hand-cut dovetails, and they sell these hundreds and hundreds of dollars for hundreds and hundreds of dollars, and you can own it. And there are people who buy that stuff up, but they can't work a piece of wood to save their life. They can't. You know why? Because they have a little bit of knowledge, they have some ideas, and they think, and this is what we do. We think, well, if I had that, I'd be better at it. Oh, if I had that one, I'd be better at it. No, you won't. You're just going to own something else. You're not actually developing a skill and actually becoming good at something. You're just buying stuff. And ladies and gentlemen, I think sometimes that's how we treat Jesus. Oh, we want to we hear a cool story, and we want to hear a good message that will keep us entertained, and we want to go home and feel like, man, I went to church today, and then we live our lives. And you know what happens? Jesus becomes a YouTube video. And what we are is we're consumers of spiritual information, but it doesn't actually change us or affect us. It doesn't cause us to make different decisions or live a different life. We just collect that stuff. That's where Peter was. This was just master, teacher. But oh, all that changes when he gets a glimpse of God. He becomes Lord. He becomes creator, master, Lord, owner. You have the right to tell me what to do. And ladies and gentlemen, we have to get to a point where we are willing to submit to Jesus, not as a teacher, but as Lord of our life. As Lord of our life, one who has the right to tell us and expect us to do what he tells us to do. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, the Bible tells us, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. What Paul is saying there is this, whatever you yield to, you are servant to. Whatever you yield to, you are a servant to. What are you serving today? Who are you serving today? The, simple, the, the easiest way to figure that out is to say, what do I yield to every day? What do I submit to every day? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no man. I would encourage you to go to Matthew 6 in your Bible, highlight, underline, circle. No man. There are no exceptions there are no exceptions. We think we're the exception, but there are no exceptions. No man can serve two masters. 
No man can serve two masters. We would call that a conflict of interest. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't work. You can tell yourself it does. You can let other people tell you it does, but it doesn't work. You can't serve God and everything else. It does not work. We fight to try to make it work. We try to convince ourselves that it's going to work, but it doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? Because God said it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And here, Peter comes to a point and he says, you are not just a teacher, you are Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, there has to come a point where we are willing to let God be Lord of our lives. We have to submit to him if Jesus is going to write your life story. You have to submit. But not only do you have to submit, you have to sacrifice. Back in Luke chapter number five, in verse seven, it says, and when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. They forsook all. We'd all probably agree that's a pretty extreme statement. Forsook all? Everything? Yep. Everything. I, I was reading this a while back, and, and I had this thought about these verses, and I've just been thinking about them last, I don't know, probably a couple months, and um, <laughs> I had this thought. Can you imagine like a week later, somebody's walking down the beach, and they're like, what's with these boats in this net? Ooh, those were Peter's. Those were James and John's. Remember, can you imagine 20 years later, as they've been weathered, as they've sat, and people come by? What's with those boats? What's with that net? Those were Peter, James, and John's boats and nets. They followed Jesus. Can you imagine 100 years later, as they begin to crumble and fade? Hey, where'd those boats and nets come from? Ooh. A while back, there were these guys, Peter, James, and John. They were fishermen, and they left all to follow Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, they didn't try to put their boat on the boat trailer and hitch it to the truck so they could follow Jesus. They didn't pack their nets in a backpack and put that on and follow Jesus. They abandoned all. And you know what? If Jesus is going to write your life, your life story, it doesn't just take submission. It's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take some sacrifice. Jesus said in... Um, uh, Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, and Jesus said unto him, no man. Did we hear that before? No man. There are no exceptions. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to take sacrifice. We, we sacrifice for so many things. We sacrifice and say no to stuff so we can save up to go on vacation. And we say no to sleep so we can get up and work out. Or we say, say no to our family sometimes so we can work overtime and make extra money. And, and we sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice all the time. But for some crazy reason, when it comes to God, we don't think it takes any kind of sacrifice. We think that, well, God will let me have that. And God will let me have this. And I'll hold on to this. And I'll hold on to that. And we want to live our life. And God's like, whoa, what? 
Why do we think we don't have to sacrifice and actually be committed to God? We are committed to so many things. But for some reason, we think God's up in heaven going, oh, it's okay, you live your life, you do your thing, and when you're ready, you come back to me. God doesn't play that way. Coach Schoen, you're a bas- you were a basketball coach. Mr. Gatto, you were a basketball coach. Would you let your players do that? Hey, coach, you know what, man? I'm in the middle of uh, my call of duty. I'm online right now, and um, I'm probably going to be about 15 minutes late for practice, and then, um, you know, but I'll be there. Oh, okay. Comes running in, hops back in the line. Okay, let's do these drills. I got my call of duty game done. No. Uh, don't come to practice. In fact, don't ever come back. Bye. Click. Why? There's no commitment. There's no commitment. I understand God is love, and I understand God gives us mercy, and I understand God is gracious, and God is kind and patient with us. But ladies and gentlemen, just because God is loving and gracious and merciful and kind and patient with us does not mean we should presume upon that and think that he's just up in heaven going, oh, yeah, you do what you want, and it doesn't matter to me. It does matter to God. God wants us to be committed to him. God wants us to sacrifice for him. What's your sacrifice like? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, he that loveth, these are some extreme statements. Listen to this. Read it. It's probably up there. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. Notice what he says. He says, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Verse 39 is interesting. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life shall find it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're so busy trying to find our lives. We're so busy trying to write our life story and make it awesome. We're trying to make every chapter exciting and amazing. And we're trying to make all kinds of money and look successful and do all kinds of awesome stuff and write our life story. And Jesus says, if you'll lose your life, you'll find it. But if you seek after your life, you'll lose it. We got it all backwards. We got it all backwards. If Jesus is going to write your life story, it's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take submission. It's going to take sacrifice. And the last one is it's going to take some seeking. Luke chapter 5, verse 11, it says, And when they had brought their ships to the land, they forsook all, notice this, and followed him. You're going to have to seek after the Lord. You're going to have to seek after the Lord. What are you seeking after? What are you following after? Matthew 6, 33 tells us, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God should be our number one priority, the number one thing we're seeking in our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus is going to write your life story, it's going to take submission, it's going to take sacrifice, and it's going to take seeking the Lord. I have a little, a little diagram, if we can put that up. Has like, yeah, yeah, that one. So, if I was to ask you, what is Lord in your life? Maybe you'd say, man, God's Lord in my life. Well, good. Praise the Lord. Good. But is he? How do you know what's Lord in your life? 
Well, let's stop. According to what Peter did, what are you following? What are you following? What do you spend your time seeking? What do you spend your time chasing after? What are you following? That'll tell you what's Lord in your life. But not only what you follow, but what you forsake or what you sacrifice for. What do you sacrifice for? That'll tell you what's Lord in your life. What do you sacrifice for? Do you realize we all sacrifice every single day? You all have a job. When you get up in the morning to go to work, you're probably sacrificing some sleep. You know why? Because your job is Lord. And I understand that. I get it. I mean, it's a priority. You've got bills to pay and things to do, and I understand that. But your job is a Lord in your life. And you sacrifice sleep for that. Maybe you work out. And maybe you work out at a ridiculous time in the morning because, well, then you got to go to work and you got stuff later that night. So you got to work out early. I get that. So once again, a Lord in your life would be working out. So you get up and you say no to sleep. You say no to whatever. And you get up, you work out, you exercise. So that way you can take care of yourself. I get it but that would be a Lord in your life. Does that make sense? So what do you forsake or what do you sacrifice for, but then what do you follow after? Those two things will tell you what is Lord in your life. So let's bring that back to God. If God is going to be Lord in your life, if Jesus is going to be Lord in your life, what do you need to start following? What do you need to start forsaking so that way he can be Lord? You can't do it without those two things. He will not be Lord of your life unless you're willing to sacrifice some stuff and follow after him. He won't be Lord. He won't be Lord. A while back, my wife and I the kids have gone to bed, and I'm on Amazon uh, Prime looking for something to watch. And I found this documentary. It was supposedly faith-based, and it looked kind of interesting. It, was, it ended up being eight guys. All eight of these guys never ridden motorcycles in their lives, but they all, they all purchased BMW uh, like crossover bikes or whatever so they could ride on road and dirt. And they were actually from Colorado. That's one reason why I, I watched it. But in, I think it was eight days, these guys traveled over a 1,000 miles in the state of Colorado on dirt. And they went over mountain passes. They camped in the middle of nowhere. And it was cool. I'm going to tell you right now, the documentary was extremely boring. But anyway, it looked cool. I was excited. I'm like, man, this is going to be awesome. I mean, I want to do this. Let's go. I'm ready. And so we watched a little bit of it. But over and over and over and over again, those guys, they'd be sitting around a campfire or, or wherever they were at, and they'd be talking, and they kept talking about their story. And honestly, it got a little obnoxious for me. I'm like, okay, I'm sick of the touchy-feely stuff. Let's go ride our bikes some more and run some stuff over. But anyway, they, it was a little too touchy-feely for me. But anyway, they kept talking about their life story. You know what the name of the documentary is? A Life worth living is the name of the documentary 
And ladies and gentlemen, I would say, I would argue that a life worth living is a life where Jesus is Lord. But ladies and gentlemen, that's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take some submission. And it's going to take some seeking. And my question to you this morning, is Jesus Lord of your life? Or is it something or somebody else? Lord of your life. A life worth living. Letting God, letting Jesus be the writer of your life story. Who's writing your life story this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, I I mean, it's the goodness of God that came to Peter this day and drew him to yourself to use him in a mighty way. And God, I believe you want to use each and every one of us. I believe you want to use each and every one in this room this morning. But Lord, we're going to have to submit. We're going to have to obey and we're going to have to sacrifice some stuff and we're going to have to follow after you. And Lord, I pray that we would let you be Lord in our lives. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I didn't really touch on this in the sermon, but, you know, if you're here this morning and if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you're writing your life story. And ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you how it's going to end. And it's not good. It ends with death. Eternal death. But you know what? Jesus came and died on a cruel cross for your sins and for mine to provide eternal life. You know why? Because he wants to rewrite your story. The Bible tells us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He gives that eternal life. It is offered to you. But you know what? You're going to have to submit to it. It's his way. You can't save yourself. You can't earn heaven and eternal life. It's, It's his to give. And he offers it freely to you if you'll accept it. And then Jesus can begin rewriting your life. Christian, who's writing your story today? Who's writing your life story? Is it you? You trying to fill in all those chapters and make it happen? Or is Jesus the writer of your story? Is he Lord? Is he the one you're following after? Let God write your life story. Let God write your life story. We're seeing just a verse, trust and obey. Let's stand. Let's stand. What page? 414, if you want it in the hymnal, page 414.